Let's please look to Luke chapter 8. We'll be walking through verses 22 and through 25 where we will see the sovereign Lord in the storm. The sovereign Lord in the storm. Let's go ahead and read that passage. It's a it's a passage, it's a story that so many of you are familiar with. It is a story that is almost always there in children's Bible storybooks. And it's one that we can, we can relate to, we can, we can reflect upon. It's one that is applicable to our lives individually and to the church as a whole. And as we always need to do, when we have a story that is of great familiarity, we need to be mindful to pay special attention to it because the familiarity of certain stories can cause us to overlook important details within those stories. So let's pray the, we're, pray the Lord would bless us as we walk through these, this short passage, but Luke 8 and verses 22 through 25. And it says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down the lake, and they were, filling, they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And, they, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. Many of you are familiar with the song from the 1970s by Gordon Lightfoot that records the story of the great sea storm that occurred on Lake Superior, where a great cargo ship was destroyed in the midst of a storm. The song's called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was on November 10th, 1975, and this cargo ship was carrying a full load of iron ore and was caught up in this great storm and was destroyed out of the clear blue. It went from being a very calm day to suddenly having 96 mile per hour winds. There were waves that were 30 feet into the air and this great ship with many tons of cargo upon it was being thrown about was being lifted three stories into the air. The, the sailors, other sailors that were there, not the sailors from this ship, but other sailors that were on Lake Superior that day recalled the sound of the winds. They were like dozens of air sirens going off all at once. They recorded the, the waves being cra crashing around the boat, crashing onto each other, and they sounded like hundreds of wrecking balls all around them. Like, let's just imagine a wrecking ball smashing into a great building, but hundreds of them all at once. That was what they were experiencing. Lightfoot sings this. He says, the captain wired in. He had water coming in, and the good ship and the crew was in peril. And later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Continues, with a load of iron ore, 26,000 ton, 26, tons or more, then the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. And the ship that had been sailing across the Great Lakes for over a decade crashed down from a wave that was three stories into the air, broke in half. Both pieces were 200 feet apart from each other, and they sunk 500 feet into the bottom of the lake. That's where they crashed. I've never been in a sea storm. I've never been on a ship when there was this kind of peril. I've never been thrown three stories into the air, but I've been on airplanes where they've dropped just a, a mere probably 20 feet, and it's jarring. It, it, it's, it's, it's terrifying. I've, I've been on roller coasters, and I'm doing that intentionally. I'm intentionally bringing myself many stories into the air and dropping my self down, but I know as the plane begins to drop and begins to rise and is doing what it's doing as it's going through the turbulence, I know that if something is damaged, it's going down. It's going to fall. I'm going down with it. There's no safety net for us there. I know they always tell us that your, that your seat is a flotation device. I can't imagine many situations where you're going to go crashing down in this 
aluminum plane and then be able to use your seat as a flotation device. I think it's even more terrifying on a ship like this where you're just being thrown around, where the foundations that are under you that are, are moving, the power of wind, the power of water. I saw this in my own life as the home that we lived in many years ago, Houston was but a month old at this time and nine feet of water came pouring into the apartment that we lived in. We weren't there at the time we had evacuated, but the soup bowl that New Orleans is filled with water and great, great was the destruction. And so the disciples here were in great peril. The disciples here were very terrified seasoned men, some of them, who had been on the waters here in the Sea of Galilee for, for many, many years were absolutely terrified. For the foundation that they stood on there of their little boat was being thrown about, was being filled with water. And we see the sovereign Lord there at this time. We see Jesus sovereignly reigning, sovereignly ruling Sovereignly even caring for his creation. We see Jesus not fretting. We see Jesus not becoming anxious. Not becoming, in fact, he's, he's sleeping. He's, he's exhausted. It's been, it's been a long day. We could go through the details of it, but there's been much teaching and preaching that was done during this day. He is exhausted and so exhausted that the boat is filling up with water. And he's just asleep. He is, he is out. So there's three things I want us to pull out of this. And I believe this is very applicable to our lives. And I believe even for those of you that maybe have not experienced much difficulty in your life at this point, this is, this is of particular importance to you as well, to, to, to be mindful of what we can glean from a passage like this. And what we will glean from even the passages that are following this passage, where we'll see here Jesus' sovereignty over the created world. Jesus is sovereignty over the natural world, this world which we know, which John told us in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. goes on to tell us that Jesus brought all things into existence, all that came into being, came into being from him. Jesus made everything that has come into being. He's harking us back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see that sovereign Lord ruling here. Sovereign Lord here, clothed in flesh, fully God and fully man. And we'll see those details as well. So let's look at these three points. The first is the sovereign Lord in the calm before the storm. The sovereign Lord in the calm before the storm. I want you to, to, to see this and, and recognize this, that he is reigning, he is ruling he is providentially leading even prior to this storm. He is the sovereign Lord in the calm before the storm. Secondly, he is the sovereign Lord in the chaos of the storm. He, he's not worried. He's not officed. He's not, oh no, what am I going to do? How is the kingdom of God going to come forward now? The, the waves are crashing. The, mo the wind is moving. It's not to dismiss any of this. We are not promised the removal of pain, difficulty, stress, tragedy. None of these are promised to us. You can sell books. You can get people to listen to your sermons if you will tell them that. That's what we all want to hear. We want to hear that we're going to be healed. We want to heal that we're going to get a raise. We, we want to hear that we're going to be blessed and our loved ones are going to be comfortable. We don't have these promises in these life. But Jesus is sovereign, even in the chaos of the storm. Sovereign Lord, sovereignly ruling, in no way distraught, in no way anxious, no way worried. Thirdly, he is the sovereign Lord in the calm after the storm. He is sovereignly ruling even then. He is using all of these events for his good purpose. And for his good purpose, see this, dear friends. You should see this in each and every one of the points. Using this for the edification of the church, 
for the sanctification of his people. There are ways in which you are able to grow and to be strengthened and to be matured through the difficulty, through the struggle, and through the pain. There's ways in which you're able to grow and be strengthened and to be sanctified, even in times of ease and comfort and blessing and flourishing. Let's look at that first point. The sovereign Lord in the calm before the storm. The sovereign Lord in the calm before the storm. Luke 8 and then verse 22 and part of 23. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and they sailed and he fell asleep. I can't imagine falling asleep on a boat. Boats are, I have, I have somewhat of an uneasy stomach on, 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 on some of these boats that are moving quite a bit. And I know on a place like the Sea of Galilee, there would be movement because of the geography that is there. And I can't imagine falling asleep. But he was exhausted. And we must not read past this too quickly. We, we are seeing a glimpse here. We are seeing a picture of the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus is sleeping. God doesn't sleep. God has no need to sleep. God has no need to rest. Yes, he did rest on the seventh day, but he didn't actually go to sleep. It's not like a really bad version that I heard in a Sunday school one time where God was so tired. Can you imagine making the whole universe and how exhausted you would be, and he just needed to take a nap. No, that would be the Greek and Roman gods that needed to take a nap. The Greek and Roman gods that were exhausted. The Greek and Roman gods that were playing tricks on one another. No, our God doesn't sleep. Our God doesn't rest in the way in which we rest. The, the truth is the Lord never exhausted himself. The, the Lord never put forth effort in the way that we would understand effort. We put forward effort and, and something is being lost within us. There's energy that was there and then is being expended and has to be replaced. The Lord, you can't add to the Lord. You, you can't take away from the Lord. The Lord just is. So Jesus here is sleeping and Jesus here is, is resting, but Jesus here is exhausted in his humanity we see this in many other places we th th there's many times where we see the divinity of jesus very closely connected to his humanity you see it in john 4 with the samaritan woman jesus was thirsty jesus wanted a drink and then jesus goes forward and confronts the woman regarding the relationships that she has had with these men in the past and present you see Jesus there when Lazarus is raised from the dead and Jesus is weeping. Jesus is weeping. God is not weeping as a man would weep. That's not, that's not how God and his deity operates. God is, God, God is not a God of passions. He is impassable. So we don't understand God and his emotional dealings in the way in which we understand men and us being moved he's not God's not moved by us I know some of us would like to have this cuddly you know view of things but that's not what you want that's not that's not a strength for God to be one who is being moved being affected being changed by those who are outside him he is consistent he is immutable he is he is unchanging but God does care for you. God does love you. God is kind. We go through all these details, but he is that way in a way that is consistent with his deity. But Jesus wept, and Jesus wept here at this funeral. We could go through the different reasons why he might have wept, but the fact is that he wept. It was a funeral. This was his dear friend. He cared for Lazarus. He was a friend of the family. He loved them, but he, as you remember when we preached through it, he intentionally waited. He waited on that journey. He sovereignly was waiting so that Lazarus would be dead and decomposing for four days before he even showed up, that he could raise him from the dead. And we see this picture. We could go through many other examples. 
of the humanity of Jesus being shown right alongside his deity there at the same time. So here he is in his humanity, and he is asleep because he is exhausted. But see this. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus wasn't like, look, let's just get away from these people. I just, let's just go. I want to get away from them. Just, just sail somewhere. No, he directed them. He directed them into the storm. Mind that. Verse 22 of chapter 8. One day they got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. He may have been asleep during the storm. He wasn't asleep prior to the storm. He is specifically directing them this way. In his providence, he is directing them into this difficulty. In his providence, he is directing them into this pain, this tragedy, this difficulty. Don't read past that. Don't just think that, oh, no, they got in trouble, and now the Lord Jesus is going to get up and try to figure out, oh, what are we going to do now? The Lord is using this for his good purpose. This is an opportunity for instruction. The Lord sanctifies his people in their lives. The Lord sanctifies his people even as they are walking through difficulties in their life, even as they're walking through pain and struggles in their life. This is intentional. This is not, this is not by mistake. The storm came providentially. And it fell upon Jesus and his disciples, as well as all the other boats in this lake. And we don't have the story of all the other boats and what happened with them, but we do know there were other boats out there in this lake. And there are a great many that call themselves Christians that have no place for such a theology. May it not be with you, dear friends. May your understanding of the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the Lord conforming you to the image of God, may it take into account God's providential work. That God is not operating and working, seeking that you will go through your life, exist in your life without any difficulty, without any problem. That we can just say, well, everything's going to happen for a purpose. It's all going to work out in the end. Well, sure, if you mean that from an eschatological standpoint, that ultimately it's all going to work out. But if you mean that here, that ultimately the Lord is going to bring this about so you'll always have more money, you'll always be healthy, things will always work out for you, you'll always just get a better job. We don't have these promises. These are not a sure foundation. These are sandy grounds. Praise God for raises we get at work. Praise God for health. Praise God for the blessings that we have. We, we're so blessed. But the air conditioning is blowing upon me as we are, we are, I'm standing here and I'm preaching. There are a great many that lived in this area for centuries. Well, maybe not too many centuries, but, but for, for many centuries that um, did not have this comfort that we're just, if we didn't have it, let's just be honest. If the AC wasn't working, that, that would be a problem. There'd be a great many of you that would not be paying attention so well. We must not be like those that are word of faith. We must not be like those that say, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. God wants you to, to speak your truth into existence. The heretical lies that are told. So you made the image of God, so you must be like God. God speaks things into existence. You can speak things into existence. The people that I've seen that walk down this destructive pathway, it's so inconsistent with who God is. See, says people, oh, I'm sorry, you're not feeling well today. No, I'm not sick. Okay, well, you're tearing up a box of Kleenex on my couch in my house, so you certainly look like you got something going on. Nope, nope, I'm blessed. I'm highly favored. I'm not, don't say I'm sick. Don't say I'm sick. Don't say it. Okay. Why? You got a pile of Kleenexes here that you're throwing into my trash can. I'm okay with you being in my house, but you seem like you're not feeling well. No, you don't want to say that, Aaron. You don't want to say that you're sick. You, you, you can't, you don't confess this. You must confess that you're well and you're healthy. That's not in the Bible. That, that's a distraction. You are losing an opportunity to grow in that situation. You are, you are losing blessings at that point. Who, who do you think you are? 
Who do you, that God was just sitting there waiting. I, I sure hope that he's, he's going to ignore the fact that he's, he's sick. I sure hope that he just declares these things to be true. I went, I was doing evangelism with someone one time early on in doing that, and he began to pray, and he was just telling God what God was, I thought I needed to step away. Like, oh, like some lightning's going to strike over here. Somebody's telling you, this is what you're going to do, and then you're going to do this. And then you sounded like a, you know, like a rebellious teenager talking to his parent about all the things that he was going to get and what they were going to do and how they were going to do it. This man was certain this is how you should pray. No. We have no promise that we will experience health and wealth in this life. Some of you will, some of you may, and it will have its own difficulties. We have a promise that in the life to come, there will be wealth and there will be health. But in the Christian theology, there is no promise of that in this life. In fact, there's no promise that we will be even be experiencing the freedoms that we have. That most Christians throughout history have not had, have not experienced. This is a foreign idea. No, there, there's a, there's a, we, we must have a place for suffering in the Christian life. We must have a place for, for difficulties in the Christian life. We must not see the times of ease and comfort as the norm and when it is always going to be and how it always must be. We must accept the times of difficulty and pain. We must do this. It is for our good, it is for our, our growth. It, it is for our, our sanctification. There are other brothers and sisters that, that we have, and many of them, big Eva, sometimes people like to call it big Eva, but bigger is better. The bigger the building, the bigger the program, the, 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 the more extravagant that it can get. We need a fountain that is flying many stories in, into the, the air and all kinds of extravagance where comfort so, so much connects this this culture and what we desire as Americans, that convenience and comfort must be prioritized. It must be prioritized. You must have that right coffee at this. We have coffee here. I'm not going to deny that. Again, if we didn't have coffee one morning, there'd probably be some of us that are like, wait a second, where's the coffee? We're in this culture as well. I'm not denying that, but it's this perspective that comfort and ease must be prioritized. No, even some would even argue, we've got to have this. We've got to have the extravagance, the largeness. We've got to have the, the biggest fireworks show for Jesus. We must spend hundreds of thousands, I'm not exaggerating there, hundreds of thousands of dollars on fireworks displays for, for, the, for the kingdom of Christ to put on this great show. I like fireworks. My family will go watch fireworks. I'm not denying that that is fun, but... As a priority of the church, as a priority of evangelism, that's not really on the list of, of things that we need to be, things to be doing. But this idea of ex entertainment, extravagance, bigger is better, comfort and convenience must be priorities from the moment, from the moment you walk into the door, from the moment you get out of your car. Right? Someone in the Hawaiian shirt needs to be there with the golf cart to give you a ride to the front. You must have it all. And you could have any number of these things. I'm not saying that having any number of these things is, is sinful or is wrong. We're Americans. We live in this culture. But the mindset of saying, I must have comfort, I must have ease, I must have convenience, and that must be a priority for the proclamation of the gospel, is a distortion. It's not consistent with how most Christians have lived throughout the existence of the church. You know, Janice and I were, were walking. We had a friend who was serving with the International Mission Board many years ago, and we went to, to visit him. He was going to be um, speaking at this, this, this church, and uh, we go in, and it was like we were in a shopping mall. I'm not even exaggerating. It was like we had a Luby's cafeteria here, and then we had the pool tables and the ping pong, and there were, in another area, there was, uh, there's a bowling alley, there's a swimming pool, there's a giant workout facility there. I mean, it was really, really 
extravagant. Janice looks at me and goes, all we need now is a Chick-fil-A. And wouldn't you know it? There it was, a Wednesday night. You can get a Chick-fil-A. You don't just have to get the, the church cafeteria. Uh, you know, you don't just have to get the steam table. You can go get your waffle fries. I like waffle fries. Waffle fries are good. But this is the idea, like every little piece and convenience has to be their friends. We must not waste our difficulties. We, we must not waste our, our troubles. These are opportunities. I worked at a restaurant one time where we weren't ever allowed to say we have a problem. And it wasn't that they denied the existence of problems or troubles, but you had to call them opportunities. So you'd have, and sometimes it was almost funny because it was like, you know, this was something really bad, like the dishwasher just blew up and we couldn't wash any. It was like, we got an opportunity over here and it's, it's a big opportunity because if you know how a restaurant works, there's about enough dishes to put them on every single table, and if you're not washing them, that's it. It's over. We don't have dishes to go on for many different, uh, you know, turns of service. But I think there's, there's, there's some wisdom in that that we need to recognize as well. These are opportunities. These are opportunities for growth. Not opportunities to see this in a word of faith way and say, look, it's just an opportunity. You go through this trouble and then you're just going to end up with more in the end. Or, or you give this money to this organization and then you're going to get tenfold, a hundredfold, you know, income return in this life as though this is, you know, better than the S&P 500. You can get a hundred times instead of just a, a 10% return. No, these are, these are opportunities. Ken Hughes says this. He says, without difficulties, without trials, without stresses, and even failures, we would never grow to be what we should become. Storms are a part of the process of spiritual growth. Another, another writer says this, it's an anonymous quote, it says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more might know more of his salvation, might more of his salvation know, and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he that taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered the prayer, but it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. The Lord uses these storms and these difficulties to grow us in our faith, to grow us and a greater trust to Christ Jesus. It is a good thing that you are trusting in Christ more and not the things of this world. And one of the ways in which that happens is by the foundations of this world being shaken up a little bit and us remembering, us remembering what it is that we're reading each and every Lord's Day, what we're preaching every Lord's Day, God willing, what we're praying, what we, we know these things to be true. We lose sight of them at times. We, we get distracted by when things are going well. That's the importance that Christ is Lord even during the time when things are calm, when things are going well, when things aren't difficult. Ken Hughes says this, storms are God's way of bringing us into deeper grace. Without adversity, we would be insufferably self-centered, proud, flat-dimensioned, and empty people. No, you don't sell a lot of books with this theology. Okay, you, you, don't, you don't many times get, you know, lots of downloads on sermons with this theology. You don't have many people following after you necessarily with this theology. But this is a theology that will be a foundation and a grace and a blessing to you during the times of trouble and during the times of blessing. It, it is a foundation for both of those times. Jesus is sovereign Lord during these times of comfort and during times of tragedy. So we must believe, we must remember these things when things are going well. We must put our mindset upon these. We must be cognizant. We must not get distracted by the blessings of this life. You lose the, the focus on Christ when things are going well and all is calm. And then when things begin to shake, things begin to trouble, you begin to despair. We must have a theology that remembers the Lord is the Lord in the calm before the storm. We must have a theology that has enough depth to see Jesus as the sovereign Lord, even during times of difficulty. There must be times of flourishing and times of difficulty, during these times of ease and comfort. It must not be that we are merely worshiping him 
We are lifting up praises to him because all is going well. That, that is not true worship. We are, we are worshiping the Lord because he is the Lord. That's the first reason. Second reason we're worshiping him is because he has saved us by grace and through faith. He has granted, he has shown mercy to us. He has shown us grace. He has given to us what we deserve not. He has not given to us what we so rightly deserve that has fallen upon Christ Jesus. He is worthy of our worship for those reasons. And so we must worship him at those times. It must not be merely because all things are going well. No, he is worthy of our worship. He's not, we're not worshiping him because he constantly caters to our comforts. Our theology has got to go beyond ourselves. It's got to go beyond our cultural context. It must be something that can be consistently lived out in various times in history, in various places in the world. He is to be worshipped at these times. He is to be worshipped as a sovereign Lord, regardless of the comforts that we are experiencing. The truth is, the times of blessing, the calm before the storm, the times when things are going well, that can be one of the greatest distractions to people. If you look at the, the history of Israel, look at the times in which all was going well, things were going well, what did they do? They're, they're going up to the high places, building the bales, they're building the asherahs. They're, they're beginning to, to, to live like the, the pagans around them. They're forgetting. They're forgetting the God that saved them. They're forgetting the God that saved them out of a slavery in Egypt, out of a slavery under Pharaoh. And they're going yoking themselves under these, these other false gods. They are forgetting who the Lord is be a distraction from our times of worship. He's the sovereign Lord even during these times. Even the calm before the storm, he is the sovereign Lord. So he's sovereign Lord in the calm before the storm. Secondly, we see he is the sovereign Lord in the chaos of the storm. He is the sovereign Lord in the chaos of the storm. He is still reigning and he is still ruling. The foundations may shudder. The boat that you're in may be filling with water. It may be moving all about. The feet, your feet may be, may be moving. They may be slippery at the time. The things that you were trusting in and leaning on, even though you may not have been, it may not have been an idol, but, but the, your life is not going as it was previously. You must remember that Jesus is sovereignly ruling. Jesus is not fretting. Jesus is not anxious at this time. Look at verse 23 and 24 in Luke 8. And the windstorm came down on the lake, and they were, they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now, it's important that you understand the geography in this, this area. So just like Lake Superior and, and how you have um, that example that I gave earlier where winds can come about very rapidly, it's that way in this area, but it's even more intense. It, it's, it's, even more, it's, it's an even more difficult, it's a very beautiful area. The, the fruit trees in this area are producing crops 10 months out of 12 months. Uh, that's really surprising that that's that's the climate that they have in this area that they are just it is so lush and there's there's just so much beauty in this area and it's it's a it's a it's a lake that's about five miles wide 13 miles long not an enormous lake but a decent size Leon Morris says this about the lake this biblical scholar he says the lake of Galilee is subject to sudden storms. It's situated some 700 feet below sea level and adjacent to mountainous regions. Cold air from the heights is apt to sweep down through the precipitous gorges to the east of it and can whip up sea, the seas in a very short time. And so that's part of the issue that happens here is that you have this, this movement of cold air going down and you have these very small ravines which of course Water goes down the ravines, but additionally, wind goes down very rapidly into these ravines because this is very far below the sea level. And so the wind, as it's being pressed through there because of the, the force of the cold air and the, the, the hot air being displaced one with another, um, it creates these, this, this very rapid movement of wind. 
It's kind of like what you have in Chicago in some ways. Whereas Chicago is known as the, the Windy City. Why do we call Chicago the Windy City? Well, it's called the Windy City because you have the wind coming in off the lake. But if you're just standing on the lake of Chicago, it's not incredibly windy. You'll have the, the wind moving, but when you stand there amongst the city and you're there amongst the buildings of the city, the wind going, being forced in between uh, the crevices between the buildings or the alleys between the buildings, the streets between the buildings, it begins to rapidly move because it's being pressed through there almost like a, like a, like, like a high pressure gun. It's pressing the air through a small space and so it's a windy city. It's there windy within the city. It's not windy in the same way when you get away from, from the buildings. And water is something, is it not, that is just, just an incredible, incredible compound. It's necessary for all of life on this earth. It's a part of our everyday life. But as it begins to move about, as gravity and wind begin to press it and move it, it is incredible. It is, as I discussed earlier, it is able to pick up that the Edmund Fitzgerald many, many stories into the air, three stories into the air, as though it, it is nothing. It's the wind that is doing that. Certainly there's other factors that are affecting it. There's gravity that's, that's going on. There's the effects of the moon that are causing certain things to move around. But most especially at that time, it was the wind that was pressing upon it. And the wind moving and moving and moving causes great force upon the water. And there's, there is a containing of water, but there is no really stopping water when it has that much that much power, and that's the reality of, of what you have here. It is the, the pressure that's happening. This is basically a squall that happened very quickly, very rapidly. It wasn't something that um, was expected. It wasn't something that you can necessarily, certain times of the year, it's more common. But then again, these are things that can happen when we're not even aware of it. I mean, wind is something that even now, we have a certain amount of difficulty predicting when it's going to move. and. If we're honest, even with all of our technology, wind's not something that we can even contain. Luke uses, it's basically like a squall, it's hurricane force winds that came about. Matthew uses the word seismos, which is literally earthquake. An earthquake was going down the water. So you can just kind of get the idea of what they're communicating. Everything is shaking. Everything is moving, nothing is still. That is the, the force and the greatness as these winds are careening down in between these ravines and they're all pressing down upon the sea from the different angles it is it is causing a great storm there upon the sea and remember this four of the 12 disciples that are here are experienced fishermen on this in the sea of galilee so they've seen storms they've been in storms before I mean, they would have thought that they they had this they would have thought that they were good. And where was Jesus during the storm? Where was Jesus as the wind crashed down upon the waves and the waves began to send the boat high into the air and it began to crash down and they're, they're stumbling and they're, they're moving and the boat is filling with water? Where was God? I found it interesting that I found even a line like that in the song by Gordon Lightfoot, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. He says, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn minutes into hours? Have you been there? Have you been in a time of tragedy where everything is going very slowly, like the adrenaline is hit and your mind is processing things even faster than you would normally process them? And things are moving much, much slower because every second is counting at this time. If you're not very mindful of what is happening, you're going to be cast out of this boat. Where is God in the midst of such tragedy? Where is the Lord God in the midst of such pain, suffering? For there is much in this life. There is pain and suffering that we will experience and we will walk through. Where is he? He is reigning. He is ruling. He is not anxious. He is not shaking. He is not fretting. He is as we sang earlier in Psalm 50. He is not in need of us. 
The Lord is not in need of anything being a certain way in this world in order for him to be stable and comfortable and powerful. Thank you. That is, that is the reality. That is the trust that we have. And that, that is a good thing. It is a good thing that, that you can trust in God even when all is falling apart, even when all is not going well, even when pain and difficulty and suffering are all around you. The disciples were not remembering this at this time. They weren't remembering the sovereign Lord at this time. Like all is lost. It's all going to be gone. All the promises, the hope, the kingdom of God coming forward, it's all going to be lost right now. It's going to fall apart. We're all going to die. The Lord was preparing Peter, I believe. I believe that Peter is influenced through what happened here and many other places. This wasn't the end of Peter's sanctification, but Peter is influenced here as well as many of the other apostles or influenced here during this time. Look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Consider what he says there. Don't be surprised when fiery trials happened, as though this is something strange, as though this never should have happened. What's going on? That's not his perspective at the time here in the boat. He was fretting. He was concerned. He was worried. Look at verse 13 there. First Peter 4, beginning in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What a foundation. What a great source of trust. Praise God that he uses such times for our growth and godliness. Praise God that he uses such time to strengthen his church. To strengthen his church even for greater difficulties that they will have in the future. Did Peter not have greater difficulties in the future? Absolutely. Tradition says he was crucified on a cross, turned upside down, upside down. So he, he wouldn't even begin to, to suffocate and, and go out of his misery that way. No. Upside down, he was crucified. First Peter 1, 3 through 9, you see this in a few places in Peter's short epistles. Blessed be the God of our of Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are now being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Look at the foundation that needs to sit on. You have been saved by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, your Christian. God has given all that is necessary that you will reside with him in glory, that you will reside with him in the new Jerusalem. He has purchased that for you. Things are difficult now. The foundations are, are moving. They are fading you're in a world that is defiled, but he describes your inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, not promised here, not promised in this life. The Lord gives blessings in this life, but it's not guaranteed that you will always have it. And the Lord providentially and sovereignly brings about difficulty in the lives of his church. The Lord providentially and sovereignly brings about difficulties in the lives of his people for his good purpose to strengthen them, to grow them. Then verse 7 there in 1 Peter 3, he says this, so that, the test, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at the goodness that is there, the testing of your faith. The strengthening of your faith. We are saved by grace and through faith and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord grows us in this. 
grows us to, to learn even more of the depth that we have been pulled from, the depth that we have been placed upon. We, we can say these truths. We can confess these truths. The Lord made all things. We are heirs in Christ Jesus. We have an inheritance for us in glory granted to us by the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. But it is at these times of difficulty, trial, stress, various pressures, anxieties, all of these things where there is a greater reminder and trust in those things. Yes, this world is not my home. I'm passing through. Use what the Lord gives me for the glory of God. Use the, the network of influence I have for the glory of God. Use the opportunities and the gifts that I have for the glory of God. This is not it. This is not the end all and be all. The Lord, the Lord has for us an inheritance in heaven, in glory. J.C. Ryle makes this point. He says this, he says, By affliction he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it we should never learn. By affliction he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning we shall say, It is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Those are deep words. Those are deep words. We could be honest and say there's a great many times that's, that's not where our heart is. We're not in a place of thanking God for a storm. And I don't mean that you're sitting there saying, oh, thank you, God, that I have cancer. I don't mean, that's not the type of prayer that we're, we're giving and we're not being sarcastic about these things. So, so, so the goodness is not the pain, but rather what the Lord is producing in us as we walk through these difficulties, as we're walking through these trials and these, these fires. Now, many, many of the writers, many of the men of the past have, have pointed out this, this picture of Christ in this boat on the Sea of Galilee as it's thrashing about with the disciples there within it as a, a picture of of the church and the trials in this world. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, he says, I scarcely know an after picture of a church than a ship upon the treacherous Galilean Sea with Jesus and his disciples sailing in it. Every sail of a good ship which bears the flag of the high admiral of our fleet must be beaten with the wind and every plank in her must be tried by the waves must trust the Lord even in these times. Even in these times when, when all is not going well, when tragedy is there, we must remember that, that he is sovereignly in control. We, we must remember the words of old. This is, this is what the disciples were not remembering, that the Lord is sovereign over all things. The Lord is sovereign here. They could have remembered the Lord is sovereign over the sea. Many times over, this is confessed. This is declared the seas were seen as a chaotic force. Most of us don't spend time on the sea, so we don't, we don't have the same understanding and, and ideas. But it was, it was a dangerous thing, and you weren't, able, you weren't able just to call for a life flight helicopter to come in. You weren't able to just go and um, you know, use, your, use, your, uh, use your radio to call in for help to let someone know that you had a problem. You were there, and it was a chaotic experience. But the Jews confessed in the Psalter many times over that the Lord is sovereign over the sea. The Lord is sovereign over this, this chaotic mass that is moving about, that is thrashing about. You can remember, the, the, this is a sea that we talked about, brought that ship that was many, many thousands of tons into the air. Three stories into the air. The Lord is of greater power than that sea. Lord is of greater power than, than, than the force of the wind that, that moved the waves into the air. Let's look through some of these psalms. Psalms 107, 24, uh, beginning in verse 24 and going to verse 30. 
It says, they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Psalm 106 and verse 9, we see a very similar word being used here that we have here um, within this passage. He rebuked, 106 and 9, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. He led them through the deep and through the desert. In other gospels, it talks about he rebuked, he rebuked the waters. Told them, that's enough, be quiet. That's his power. That's his sovereignty. Psalm 89.9, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The Lord has the power to control these waters. Psalm 65, 6 through 8, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of his people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. We sang this earlier, did we not? We sang this earlier. Have you ever noticed singing? Um, um, have you ever noticed singing some of these um, some of these songs by Charles Wesley? And it's almost like a, a ship going on the water. It's almost moving back and forth. I can't help but think that passages like this and many others are a reminder of the Lord and His sovereignty, Lord and His care over us. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to Thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide me till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. O the Lord, the Lord that was sovereign in the calm before the storm is sovereign in the chaos of the storm. He is sovereignly reigning, he is sovereignly ruling, and he is the sovereign Lord in the calm after the storm. Look at their response here. It says, And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water to obey him? Consider this. Where was their sin where were they wrong? Why, why are they being rebuked? Why is he confronting them? What should they have done differently? Yeah, you as parents have asked your children that before. Now, what should you have done differently? Let's think of this. How could the disciples have handled this more appropriately? How could they have had a greater faith at this time? Ask yourself, is it sinful to be fearful in the midst of a sea storm? Is it sinful to be concerned for the life of your brother that maybe, because we don't even have the details here. Certainly they were sloshing around. Some of them perhaps were almost falling over. They're grabbing each other. Meanwhile, there's water everywhere. There's, there's a fret. There is difficulty that is here. It's not, it's not sinful to be scared. It's not sinful to, to ever have fear. It, it's not wrong that you have concern for other people. Right? You should... You should take care of your car. If you have tie rods that are going out, you shouldn't be driving around your car. You should get those things fixed so that you don't take the life of someone else. That's our understanding of the sixth commandment. Not only do we not murder, we must also be mindful and care for the lives of other people. So being concerned, being, um, being fearful even at a time like this isn't wrong. The problem is when you're telling yourself, it's it, it, this is this, where you're just losing your mind, basically. Where you're saying it, it's all for loss. It's all, and that's, what, that's the point they had come to. Where they were not remembering the Lord that was here. They were not remembering that this is a man, Jesus Christ. And he had, he had brought people back to life and he was lying there with it. Yes, he was asleep. But the Lord Jesus Christ sovereignly brought people back to life. And they, they had already seen this. They're forgetting how many of us forget during these times. How many of us need these reminders of where our trust should be? Ken Hughes makes this point. 
I love this quote. He says, the storm doesn't wake Jesus, but the unbelief of his disciples does. The storm doesn't wake Jesus, but the unbelief of his disciples does. Master, master, do you care? That's how it's asked in another place. Master, do you, do you even care? How many of you have been there? How many of you have been counseling and talking with other people that you care for? That you just, does God even care? Does it even matter to God that I'm going through this? You must remember the words of old. You must remember your salvation. You must remember what the Lord has done. Does the Lord care? The Lord has sent Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has clothed himself in flesh. He has dwelt among us. He has taken upon himself the consequences of our sins that we can have life. Jesus cared. He was there in the boat with them. He was there in the boat with them. Consider what the psalmist says in Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Oh, that you could be there, dear friends. That you could say, this was good for me. This was difficult. This was painful. This was, this was, this was awful. I wouldn't wish what I walked through upon someone else, but I can see this was good for me. That I can confess, that I can declare all things work for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there a place in your theology for that verse in Psalm 119.71? It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Oh, that we, would, that we would see this, that we would trust in the Lord in these times. The Lord even removing all other opportunities of trust. The pain is not removed. The difficulty is not removed. Embarrassment's not removed. Continuing to walk through the struggles and the difficulties of the circumstance. And the Lord is sovereign in these times. And the Lord is accomplishing his good purpose. And you come to the other side of that trial and you are stronger. Your faith is stronger. The Lord is but preparing you. The Lord is but preparing you for another trial you will have in the future. And you say, oh no, when does this end? You just go through a trial so I get stronger. He'd give me another trial. And I go through a trial and I get stronger. You send me another trial. Yes. Praise be to God that he does this. That he strengthens us in these times. That we can be used for his good purpose. That we can be reminded that it's not about us. We must not have a man-centered theology. It must be God-centered. It must be focused upon him. On his glory. He drives us closer to him to trust more and more upon him. It's only on the other side many times that, that you can see this. And just being lectured about it is not sufficient. I can give you a lecture of walking through trials and difficulties and you can have the head knowledge. Okay, I'm going to grow in conformity to Christ. I'm, these things are all going to happen. But going through the trials is a way in which you are trusting in this that is beyond just an intellectual assent. That's a good thing to know things, but to walk through them, to walk through these struggles, to walk through these trials, there's a growth that is there. There is a strengthening of faith that is there. There's a realness. It's a realness that I can, I can say, okay, the illustration has been used. I believe in this chair. I believe that chair can hold me. I could do the math on the chair and say, okay, the, there's this much steel in the chair and, and I weigh this much. It's going to hold me. But there is an actuality of, of, of trusting in it that is, that is demonstrated, that is being lived out and actually sitting in the chair. That's the reality in walking through these trials. Are you not aware yet? God, God is aware God is sovereignly aware. He is omniscient. He is good. We must remember his attributes. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than sparrows. Believe these things. Cling to these things. Trust in this. 
trust in the Lord in these times, even as you walk through the pain and the struggle and the difficulty. Cling to this. Remember it. Confess these truths. It's not just about confessing to, to, to change the, the, our life to make it more easier, but there's a confessing these truths that's clinging to it, that's believing upon it. It's a trusting upon it. Well, the, the ways we can see, we can see a great history of those that were not trusting in the promises. Those that, that were believers but were not trusting God in a consistent way and he brought difficulty in their life. We see this with Abraham, Hagar. We can say Abraham with Sarah and calling her his sister. We can see Jacob and Esau and Jacob lying and deceiving. What is it that he says when he's wrestling with the Lord? He what is your name? He says his name. Why? Because he had been lying about what his name was. You must trust the Lord. Ken Hughes says this, they were afraid that all of them, including Jesus, would die. They thought that everything, including the great kingdom promises, would be lost. Where is your faith, dear friends? Where is your faith? Fear is not sinful. Concern is not sinful. But the idea that all is lost. If this person doesn't get elected, all is lost. If these things don't happen, all is lost. If I don't get this job, all is lost. Dear friend, remember. Remember, you can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given you that which surpasses anything that this world could give to you. All is not lost. J.C. Ryle says this, where was the real faith, where was the real value of faith unless they kept it exercised? Where was the real value of faith unless they kept it exercised? What was the use of trusting if they only trusted in their master in sunshine and not in storms? And they were afraid. Mark this. They were afraid. They were more afraid when Jesus calmed the storm, when Jesus says, be quiet, when Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. They were more afraid then than they were in the boat as everything was sloshing around. They're fearful in the calm of the storm. Jesus putting away the waves didn't remove their fear. He has the power. Catch that. He has the power to command these waves that were throwing us about. How much greater power is he than these waves? Jesus is going to show his power in these next few passages. He's sovereign over nature in this passage. He's going to be sovereign over the demons. After that, he's going to be sovereign over disease. And after that, he's going to be sovereign over death. Each of these is going to be demonstrated by Luke as we walk through these next few passages. And in each of these situations, he is going to do a miracle, and they are going to be more afraid after he does the miracle than they were prior to him doing the miracle. So much so that they will tell him to go away. Remember Peter in chapter 5 of Luke, beginning in verse 8, they had that great catch, and Peter fell down to Jesus' knee, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James, John, the son of Zebedee, and the partners of Simeon. They were astonished. They were shocked. Seeing the power of Jesus led him to see that this is God. This is the sovereign Lord. He saw his sin. There doesn't have to be a fear of the power of God. There can be a righteous and a holy fear of God, yes. A respectful fear of God, yes. But your friends, you do not have to fear that God is going to crush you at any moment. That if you don't live your life just right and you don't do things just in this way and you don't superstitiously follow these certain patterns so that then all things will go well for you and then you get a flat tire and you say, well, I guess I should have given some money to the homeless man that I passed. That's why I have a flat tire. The Lord's taking that out of me now. I could have paid the homeless man. Now I'm going to pay discount tire. I've heard that said before. I'm not even making that up. That's not Christianity. No, you can have a, a true, a true trust in Christ. You can have a true peace with God. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 5. 
Christ has granted us peace with God. That comes about through one way, through one way, not by your religious actions, not by you doing your best. Your best is insufficient. It's not good enough. It's never been good enough. It's not about your best. You need God's best. You need Christ's best. You need one who act on your behalf. You must see the seriousness of your sin. You must see that you have broken God's law. You have violated his law many times over. And God hates this and it displeases him. He is not smiling upon you when you're walking in rebellion. There's some that will say, God's just smiling upon you as you live your life the way he's made you. Not naturally. You were born in defiance to God. You're born as an enemy of God. You're born in an alliance with the devil. You're born a child of the devil. That's how you come into the world. This is serious. And you must see, there's nothing I can do. It doesn't matter how good I act. It doesn't matter how many times I pray or go to church. It doesn't matter if I give money to the homeless guy. It's not about my flat tire. It's about the fact that I have broken the law of God. The wages of sin is death. That death that is promised is not just a physical death. It's not just difficulty and sickness in this life. It is a spiritual death. It is eternal punishment. You sin against an eternal God, there is an eternal consequence. And you must see your hopelessness. And see that God has given a way. Not that my life can be easy and comfortable and I can be wealthy and healthy in this life. No, that you can see that God has given a way whereby we can have peace with him. That God has shown his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That Jesus did two things, dear friends. Please see this. Jesus took upon himself the consequences of the wrath of God that is so rightly deserved upon all who have broken his law. He took that upon himself on the cross. Christ being eternal God, fully God, fully man, acted as our representative, took that upon himself fully, fully took that upon himself. There's nothing else to pay when you're in Christ Jesus. There's no penance that needs to be given to free yourself from purgatory. Christ is sufficient Jesus said, it is finished. And Jesus also did this. He followed the law in every way. He kept the law in every respect. He never sinned in any way. And Jesus has purchased for us that perfect righteousness that when you die, you can stand before the Lord. And even in this life, you don't have to say, well, maybe I got a flat tire right now because I didn't do this or didn't do that. Or this is happening to me now because I didn't follow these superstitious patterns. You don't have to say that. You can trust God when you have a flat tire, even on the wrong side of town, and things aren't going well. You can trust God when things aren't going well in your marriage or your family. You can trust God knowing that he intentionally is bringing difficulty into our lives for his good purpose. Not because we didn't do this thing or that thing. But you can know that that greatest relationship in your life that had been damaged, that most important relationship in your life that had been damaged has been secured, that you have peace with God. And it doesn't matter what you go through in this life. The Lord is with you. The Lord is sovereign there. It may seem that he's asleep at this time, but no, the Lord doesn't actually sleep. He doesn't need to rest. He doesn't need to sleep. The Lord is there and he is sovereign. You must trust him even in these times even in the difficulty, even in the storm. For he is Lord. He is Lord of the storm. He is the Lord in the storm.